Welcome to Joan Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is my pleasure to host you. And this edition of the Joan Carey Podcast is a very special one because it features one of my best friends in the business and a hell of a guy, great writer, Rob Nyer. Rob Nyer, one of my earliest influences in journalism. It pretty much went, let's see, Michael Farber at the Montreal Gazette and then Sports Illustrated, Bill James, Who's Bill James? Uh, and then pretty much Rob Nyer. I think he was the next one up. Started writing for ESPN.com in the mid-90s. Writing intelligently and entertainingly about baseball on the internet. What? You can do this? That's a thing? You can make a career out of this? I was not aware of this. Okay, I'm going to go do that too. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, all props to Rob for making that happen. And uh, you need to check out his new book, Powerball. It's really good. The predecessor to this book was a book called Nine Innings by a guy named Dan Okrent, actually the co-inventor of rotisserie baseball. And the premise of that book was basically nine innings, and in each inning, K, you'd discuss the actual game, what happened in the particular game he was watching, but there'd be digressions based on the body type of the center fielder or whatever, the nature of left-handed pitchers, whatever it is. And Rob uh, very much carrying that forward to the new generation with Powerball, which is a book about a game from September 2017 featuring the Oakland A's and the Houston Astros and all about those players and teams and baseball in general and life in general. It's really, really good. Really, really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I would say that if I didn't know Rob, the book was excellent. And you should pick it up, try to get to your local indie bookstore. Or you can also check out Rob's voice, as he points out in the podcast. You can do so via Amazon or Audible. Uh, and you can pick up the audio book if you want to do that. It's really good. This podcast also a lot of fun. We talk about the... Uh, what it's like to put a book out. That's fun. Not all of us get to do that, and it's cool and trippy that first day, so we do that. Rob is also the commissioner of a collegiate baseball league, so we discuss that kind of like the Cape Cod League, but west of Mississippi, and uh fascinating kind of thing. And we talk baseball in general about shifts and all kinds of stuff that happens in the game and how he feels about it. So really good, rich talk, baseball, writing, commissionering, uh, wearing a mascot suit. <laughs> it's great. I think you'll dig it. Let's also discuss this week's sponsor, friends, and that's Hims. Hey, you know what? Two-thirds of men lose their hair, or start losing their hair, by age 35. Thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's probably too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair that you've lost. So your hairline is slowly starting to move backwards, bald spots, any of that stuff. Well, there's a solution for this, and that is forhims.com. F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss as well as skincare, sexual wellness, and other products for men. And it's a wide variety of products that will help you out. They connect you, Hims does, with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss, well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to keep your hair. No snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. No waiting room, no awkward in-person doctor visits. It is easy. You answer a few quick questions. The doctor will review your case and can prescribe what is right for you. Best way to order? Very simple. Listeners can get a trial month of hymns for just five bucks right now while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy, but in this case, you just go to forhims.com. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com slash Jonah. That's forhims.com slash Jonah. Again, forhims.com slash Jonah. Thank you to hims 
for sponsoring the podcast. Not hymns like singing, H-Y-M-N-S, although that would be an interesting sponsor as well, I suppose, in its own way. Also interesting, terrible segue, is this edition of the Joey Carey Podcast. It's with the great Rob Nyer. Check out this episode, and then go buy Powerball, damn it. It's a really good book. You should read it. Make it so. So today is launch day. Today, well, I guess this podcast is coming out tomorrow, meaning Wednesday, uh, the 11th, the 10th. But uh, as I'm talking to this particular gentleman, it is launch day for his new book, which is called Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. And uh, there are some great books books of this genre. The one that I really loved was uh, Nine Innings by Dan O'Krent, which was written in the 80s. And the premise of the book was that you would take a normal baseball game and you would have the characters in the baseball game. You talk about these players, but you would be able to digress into longer conversations. And the idea of having astute, keen, razor-sharp observations about modern baseball, but being able to pivot easily into, let me tell you about Wee Willie Keeler, is something that I feel like I could count the number of people on the planet who could do this on one hand, and one of them happens to be a good friend of mine, and he's on the line right now. It's Rob Nyer. Rob Nyer, how are you? <laughs> Thank you, Jonah Carey. <laughs> it's great to be here. Uh, Don't try I, I to bring the Carey energy. Don't try. Nobody can do it. It's impossible. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't. Uh, uh, it, it is nice when my um, appreciation for the game's history comes in handy, yeah. which isn't that often these days. Um, it's it's hard to work that sort of stuff in, but getting a chance to to to, to talk about Wee Willie Keeler or quote somebody from 1916 about federal league uh uh game times um is is gratifying for me that's a good way to jump into one of my favorite segments of the whole book and that was the discussion of jose altuve first of all i really liked the interview that you did with altuve so before you even get to the broader discussion tell me about that because for people who are familiar with the nyer oeuvre it it's very much you know, there's a little bit of outsider journalism to it, which is, I think, how I came up in this business and how a lot of us did. But you, of course, worked with Bill James, you know, the Pitcher's Guide to Baseball, things like that. Name the book, your Fenway book. These books, I guess Fenway was a little bit more reported, but this feels more reported than the usual Nyer work. And to get to talk to a true superstar like Altuve, I assume you don't know him very well, if at all, and come in and tease out really interesting information right from his mouth. How was that for you in terms of putting this together? Was that fun? Was it nerve-wracking? Did you feel you got what you wanted out of it? Because I thought that was some of my favorite stuff. And, and to be honest with you, uh, different, you know, just different for a book by you, but really, really lent some heft to what was already a cool idea that was well executed. It really was a lot of fun. Uh, it was, it was, it, you're right. It was a real departure for me. Um, I would say they're almost, almost undoubtedly, there's more reporting 
or a portage, I guess, in this book than all my other books combined. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I have admired good reporting for as long as I've been reading, basically. But I, I think that for most of my career, I was either too inexperienced or too insecure or whatever mm. to really make the effort. And the only, frankly, the only reason that I made the effort this time was because I, th- I think I really felt the book needed that. Um, and I, I was able to in my last full-time job when I worked at, um, at Fox Sports, I did a little bit of reporting. I did an, uh, an oral history of Bill Murray's baseball career. Really good. Well worth reading that piece. I appreciate that. And I spoke to a lot of people, but no major leaguers. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of easy to get people because people who aren't famous <laughs> typically like to talk. You know, they're sort of happy that someone yep. finally wants to hear their story, too. Um, but after leaving Fox and becoming a freelancer, uh, it turned out that the stories that people wanted me to write, were willing to pay for me to write, were reported stories. So I, I got more practice um, in uh, when it came to getting people on the phone, talking to them, um, becoming more at ease with not only them but myself in those situations. So when this opportunity came to me, thanks in large part to you, by the way, to write this book, I knew immediately that it, it doesn't work the way I want it to work if I just sit there watching the game um, I mean, that's a big part of it, yeah. as you know, but I also knew that for me, the book, it wouldn't be the book that I wanted it to be unless I spoke to dozens of baseball people, including, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 15 or so uh, people who actually played in the game I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. And that was the most fun that I had in the process because um, I've never done it before. You know, it's it, it's as a writer it's for me, it's always thrilling to do something I've never done. And, and being in the clubhouse, um, night after night at Safeco field, actually, and sort of waiting my turn to talk to Jose Altuve or, or Colin McHugh or, or whomever it was. Um, and finding out by the way, that I think it's, it's intimidating if you haven't been in that milieu very often. It is. Uh, It still is for me now. And I've been done it a bunch. I'm still not comfortable. It's, it's, I think it's tough unless you've done it, or you're one of those people who just, uh, doesn't have any fear. Or you're a beat writer, um, even though you've been every day for 20 years or something like that. But if you kind of float in and out, it's, it's different. But go ahead. But I I was fortunate that the, the PR people who worked for both of the teams, Mm -hmm. the A's and the Astros were, were very kind and sort of steered me toward players who they thought would be, would be helpful. And, and, and the players, um, almost invariably could not have been, uh, more accommodating. Mm. You know, you have a question, go ahead and ask. I mean, there were a couple of guys who didn't seem super thrilled, but were still, uh, still gave me the things that I wanted. Yep. And there were some, some players who, uh, you know, they, they actually seemed, and I think part of it was that the, uh, those teams, I think they just, the guys get along well. The clubhouse are relaxed. It's not the Yankees or the Red Sox where they're yeah. it deluged with people asking yeah. questions. So, um, I had a, a great time. I would love to have talked to every single player in the games. I didn't have the time to do that, but I, I really did enjoy that part of the process. Some of my favorite stuff, and I'll just go back to Altuve, was the business about, he's talking about 
he'd made a change in his swing, and he was always he could hit for average, and he had a pretty good sense of, of balls and strikes. But the ability to really drive the ball against quality major league pitching, that he has strong, strong wrists and so forth. But you know, one of the smallest players in major league history, very atypical for somebody like that, other than maybe Joe Morgan to hit for the, that kind of power. Said he changed his swing in the first, I think it was 20 games of the season after he made his changes. Couldn't hit a lick, more or less, or at least didn't hit for power. And he talked about the self-doubt that he either had or could have had, given those circumstances. And I can't remember if he said, well, small sample size, no biggie, or if he just said I had to stick with it. But it it seemed very very insightful and very self-aware in a way that even the smartest ballplayers won't necessarily get to. Did you did you learn anything in that respect from players? Because I feel like if you ask a writer, tell me about your process, tell me about how you feel every day. Oh yeah, we'll talk to you. You want to know? Okay, I'll give you everything. But it's such a it's such a sea ball hit ball sport, and and there's almost like a a fetishizing of dumbness in sports in some ways. It's oh you know the best players like Manny Ramirez was such a good player because he was dumb. First of all, I don't know that Manny Ramirez was dumb, and secondly, uh, are we sure that Manny Ramirez wasn't actually really smart in his craft? Here's Altuve talking about inner doubt. Can he change it? Here's the sample size. Did that surprise you? Did you find that was typical of players that you talked to? Because it was a real – I've talked to a bunch of players, but it was an eye-opener for me that somebody that good could talk so intimately about how he felt about the changes that he was making. What I've found is that is in relatively limited amount of time that I did spend with the players, what I found is that – they really do enjoy talking about their craft, mm. what they consider a craft. And, um, uh, because I think that they do feel, uh, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, they don't, they, they feel that, uh, fans and maybe even a, a lot of the media doesn't understand how much work goes into it. Yes. How hard they work in the offseason. Uh, Matt Olson was another guy that I spoke to. Uh, the A's first baseman, mm-hmm. um, who basically remade his swing in the offseason and was in there every day. You know, people think these guys don't work in the offseason. They just lounge around the pool or something. <laughs> but um, they're working out for the most part. They don't have an offseason. They're working out. Some of them are changing their swings like Altuve did, like Olsen has. Like, you know, many of today's, and I talk about this in the book, many of today's great hitters uh, sort of came out of nowhere yeah. and they did it not because their team said, Hey, go work with the hitting coach today and, and hit some balls off the tee. These guys are paying private hitting coaches in the off season and completely changing their swings. And, uh, that takes a, a lot of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work. You also have to admit that you can be better. You have it, which requires, you know, there's a certain amount of insecurity that that, yes. that that comes along with that. I'm not a great player right now. I think I can get there, but I'm not. So I'm going to do A, B, and C. I'm going to show up at spring training with a different swing, and boy, I sure hope that works out okay. Which is so funny because again, that goes to pro athletes being so different than the rest of us. Arrogance is a virtue in that field, and let's just go back to writers. I mean, neurosis and and. Uh, self-doubt, all these things, it's almost like a cliche at this point. Oh, I'm a writer. Oh, my God, I'm staring at the blank screen or whatever. It, it really strikes me. And you talked about the players who remade their swings. Just off the top of my head, Josh Donaldson, Justin Turner. Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor. All these guys really made big changes. 
And one guy that also stuck with me, not related to the book, but just Justin Smoke, who became a much better player. And he said that he went to a psychologist, that a lot of it was just in his head and he needed to be in, well, it wasn't necessarily suffering from depression or anything, but he needed to adopt a positive mind view when he came to the plate and suddenly hit 38 bombs. And I, I think that vulnerability, admitting vulnerability is such a cool thing and, and goes to where we're at with sports and maybe society that it's like, okay, it's, it's catching up now and mental health is valued that, oh, you're, you know, you can bench 380, cool, but you're quivering pool of do when you're at the plate you're not going to get anything done I, I find that uh really really striking um i also like when you get into the macro it's absolutely necessary and one of the things that i have struggled with as a writer maybe all the time although i feel like I eventually you catch your groove is you don't Bill, Bill James used to say, you don't want to write for the lowest common denominator, you want to flatter your reader. And I used to keep that saying, I don't remember the verbatim, but I used to keep it up on my desk over when I worked at Investors Business Daily of all places. I kept it up there and it just reminded me, don't try to dumb things down. But when you read this book, and I'm not saying you're dumbing it down, but you're describing some basic elemental things that anybody who's read Fangraphs once would be like, what are you doing? Of course I know about this, let alone, you know, W-P-A-L-I or whatever. And you do it in a way that works. How do you make that happen? You're writing this thing. Ideally, you'd like it to be a bazillion, jillion dollar seller and not just for the people who read fan graphs. How do you convey complex ideas and maybe even not necessarily complex ideas to draw on the readership without turning off somebody like me who read Baseball Prospectus in 1997, who read Rob Nyer in 1994? Well, first of all, basically all I can say is I'm glad that you get that impression because I really couldn't write for the fan graphs crowd. It's not big enough. Yes. I wish I could. Yes. If I were a wealthy man, I would probably just write, I would write a book every couple of years that were just for my 2000 closest friends. <laughs> I would love to do that there. Yeah. I have so many books I'd like to write that nobody wants to read. Um, but, but they interest me, but I felt like I owed it to myself, my publisher, my editor to write a book for, Ideally, a larger audience, the audience that doesn't, isn't on fan graphs every day. As far as how I do it, I really couldn't, I'm not sure I could begin to, to, to tell you unless I thought about it for a while because to whatever degree I've been successful in this business, I think it's probably because I was able to take those concepts, um, and, and, and bring them to a, somewhat larger, less esoteric audience. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to when I started in 1996. So I've been doing this basic thing for 22 years. I don't know if it will work. I don't know if it, it's ever really worked. I don't know if it will reach a large audience, but it's, I'm not doing anything different conceptually than I've been doing since then, since, since 96. Do you draw from other writers? I know one person that you've worked with here and there, is Michael Lewis, whose work is obviously integral in, in our space. Moneyball is such a generational book, but I mean, Liar's Poker is one of my favorite books. You know, his new stuff, Fifth Risk, all, all that stuff is really great. He writes in a way that's kind of simple and punchy, but also explains things in complicated concepts in easy and even fun to digest ways. Do you take pages from him? Do you, are you a Doris Lessing <clears throat> advocate? Are you somebody who reads I don't know. You're reading Homer's Odyssey to get fired up for writing a book about the 2017 Oakland A's. Do you have go-tos or you just say, no, I'm Nair. I'm going to do my thing. And that's that. I, I might be wrong, but I believe I'm too old 
to draw anything consciously from someone else's style. Interesting. Um, Why do you I, say I think that? that, well, I, I just think that, uh, the, 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 the neurological pathways hmm. and connections in my brain are just simply well, too well established, at least as a writer. Hmm. You know, for the same reason, it would probably be, be, probably be more difficult for me to, to learn a new language now than it was when yeah. I was 16. I think it would probably be too difficult for me to learn how to write poetically, for example. Hmm. I've had a goal for many years, which I failed at, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> reading at least one poem every night just to inject a bit of lyricism into my writing. Huh. Um, I have read more poetry in the last year or two than I ever had before, but it's not anything like a poem every night, even though I have books of poetry next to my, next to my bed. Um, but I, but I, I do believe, and I might be wrong, and I kind of hope I'm wrong, that even if I did that, it wouldn't really take because I've been doing it the same way I've been doing it for so long. Having said that, I think it's possible that I'm, I write in a punchier style now than I did 15 years ago because I have read and admired so many Michael Lewis books. Mm -hmm. I think when I was starting out, um, and maybe for some time after that, I was never consciously, but subconsciously doing a pale imitation of Bill James and maybe still am. I don't Haven't know. we all? <laughs> right. I mean, and he's a better I, writer than he is a researcher. No offense to his research, but he's a phenomenal writer. That was always, I, I absolutely agree yeah. with that. And you know, there, one of the things that Bill does that I don't do is write metaphorically yes. or use in use similes. And I, that's just never really happened in my brain. I actually should have made a point of every six or eight pages to do it in my book, but it, at the end, it just didn't, I ran out of time and it didn't happen, but yeah. I want to, I want to be a better writer in that way. Um, but I do think there are some things that I do that Bill does. Um, again, subcon I think Michael Lewis is a great example. And if I were ever blessed with the opportunity to write a book, the sort of thing that Michael Lewis would write, embedding myself and telling a story like he does, I suspect that it would come across as, at least on, on some level, an imitation of him because, mm. of course, I've read and enjoyed so many of his books. And not, o not only that, but if you could somehow recreate Michael Lewis, you might actually write a bestseller. So why would you not do that, at least subconsciously? It's funny about the neurological pathways. Maybe I'm a blind optimist, but I, I pretend that I'm 16 years old in that respect. I, I just like, to me, it's I, I try to be a sponge and I try, I mean, it's not to say you read as much, maybe more than I do, but it, it's not a matter of the, the degree of consumption. It's just like, I'm actively trying. And there's a fine line, of course, because you can't, you certainly can't plagiarize words or ideas, but even just you know, concepts, writing styles, you have to let it filter in, disseminate all over your brain, and let it kind of happen to you. It's such a weird thing to want to be influenced by other people, but not ape them is really hard and, and feels like kind of unique to our, I guess maybe comedians would have that to some extent too. You don't want to be Carlos Mencia, but if you see... Chappelle perform you're like oh damn that guy's good and you're 20 you don't want to be Chappelle Jr but it would be that's he's really smart maybe I could learn something along the way and I'd like to think that I that I do do that and I find that the best way for me to do that is to read stuff and we're digressing off of baseball to writerly stuff but whatever it's my podcast um, <laughs> I find that the best way for me to do that is to read a New Yorker article about global warming or, or whatever. Like it's something that's not at all about baseball because then 
my brain wants to open itself up more to that kind of thing because if I'm reading baseball, even if the style is different, even if it's somebody I've never read, it's baseball. It's too familiar to me almost. Not that I can't learn anything about baseball. Of course I can. But I like to come in fresh to something. Global warming is even too much because I've read too much about global warming. It'd be like the life cycle of a caterpillar. I've never read anything about that. Give me all of that. I want all of that because I want to know all about the caterpillars because then I'm learning from a new writer, a new style, a new publication, a new topic. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think the pathways are closed. I feel like you could be writing something when you're 75. Maybe you don't think that you're getting that, but you might be able to get it. I, I'd like to think that we have room to evolve at, in what we do. Well, I, I hope you're right. And it's funny that you bring up caterpillars because just in the last few weeks, the New Yorker published a really great article Come about on. termites. Did wow. you read the termites article? I haven't read that. And I want to. Of course. I mean, I, I hope that that's all seeping in and doing something to my brain and making yeah. me at least a little bit better as a writer. I don't know. Um, um, all you can do is, I mean, one duty, I think, that any conscientious writer has is to read and read widely. And so I like to read novels and I like to read The New Yorker and I like to read lots of nonfiction, most of it not about baseball. And I hope that some of it sinks in and I hope that, that it, you know, Rob Nyer at, at 52 is a better or at least maybe a bit more interesting writer than Rob Nyer at 42 and 32. But I, I really don't know. I read the Rob Nyer at 42 and I don't really recognize him. I, I think it's pretty good. I don't That's really good. know. That's good. That's good that you don't recognize him, though. That means you've evolved. Yeah, I, I, because I mean, I would write that differently today. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the same, the same. I'd hit the same basic themes and have the same basic opinions, but the words would all be different. Yeah, the sentences would all be different, as it should be. Whether they're better now, I don't know. But I, all you can do is try. Read, read good writing, and and be conscientious, and and hope it all comes out in, in the end. Yeah, I feel like we'll have shibboleths too. Like I know that I have go tos and stuff like that. And I oh my god, I should. I, I <laughs> are there Rob shibboleths? Do you know what they it's, are? It's embarrassing. I don't know what they are. If you would asked me six months ago, but if you read I, your own I work paid, back to yourself, you could see I, it. I, I I paid a friend, yeah, uh, Patrick Dubuque, who writes oh, for sure. baseball. He's very talented and very good at his craft. I, I love his work, mm -hmm. and I, I I I sought him out because he he writes. Utterly unlike I write. Mm. So I didn't want, I wanted someone who came at it from a completely different direction. Um, and he added a great deal to, 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 to what I was doing. But looking at his edits, I, I almost, I felt sorry for him because he had to, he had to point out so many things that I was doing over and over again, <laughs> little verbal ticks. Yeah. And it was like, I really do that. That often it was embarrassing. Fortunately, Patrick is the only one who saw it, but he, he did, he, he, nobody should have to do what he did. Well, I will mention this and I'll give you a tip of the cap because, uh, you have been first read on my books and you beat some things out of me that I was doing too often too. And so now what I do, because I can't always have my own personal Rob, is even if I'm writing an 800 word story on Jose Altuve, something very simple. I reread my article, and if I've repeated something, well, even if I've repeated it once, I chuck it. I do not want repetition. I want things to be fresh. My shibboleth is more in style in that everything, there has to be, not so much for a short-form article, but anything where it gets a little longer, there's going to be something silly at some point in the article. I mean, unless I'm writing about something horrific. I, I can remember writing a thing about 
rabid unicorns in the bleachers when I was writing about the Tampa Bay Rays 10 years ago, which is the <laughs> dumbest thing ever. But nobody's ever really thinking about rabid unicorns in the bleachers. It's just that I have to bring that. And I like that. I feel like having the signature style but also evolving is uh, is fun. And that's what I'm always trying to do. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about shifts because this comes up quite a bit in the book. It's come up quite a bit in uh, baseball talk as a whole. People debate whether or not it should be outlawed. I'm pretty sure you share the same general opinion as I do, which is don't outlaw anything because why? I don't believe that people should headhunt. But other than that, uh, Ray Chapman and so forth. But um, I, I don't think that you should do that. I think the game should be allowed to evolve. You mentioned Anthony Rizzo bunting for a hit a few times. I had Carlos Pena on my podcast. I pointed out to him that he went 15 for 25 in his career bunting for a hit, which, of course, doesn't take into account the times that he fell behind in the count and so forth. But 600 still pretty good. Yep. I like this. I think people learn to hit to left. I think that the same way that people learn to uppercut the ball a few years ago, this is going to change. But does it fundamentally right now? We, we figure it'll probably change. We figure something's going to happen. Somebody will hack it. But right now, do you think the game is worse because shifts are happening so often? Aesthetically. No, I, mean. I do not. Okay. I, I, I don't. Um, I think that the argument that shifts make baseball less interesting mm-hmm. hinges upon an argument that no one has been able to quantify. Uh, the argument that I've seen is that Hitters are hitters are uppercutting more mm-hmm. and thus striking out more mm-hmm. and hitting home runs more, of course, because they don't think they can beat the shift any other way. They some will say that, and that's been repeated. But how do you sh- how do you prove to me that they wouldn't be doing this anyway? Because that's where the money is. Yes, you know what I mean. But it but it also isn't because you also write all about Chris Carter and. Or even Chris Davis. Chris Davis, two, the two overall leader, I mean, he hit 48 this year in home runs, and you know he's making five, six, seven million dollars a year. And even JD Martinez, who's a really good ball player and a power hitter, made 110, and it doesn't feel that heavy compared to power hitters of the past. So it's weird. Like it is where the money is, but I think people sort of recognize that if you're a five tool player, like if you can hit for that kind of power, but also do everything else. That's where you're going to make multiples on multiples, whereas before, home runs and RBI might not be that far from, you know, your five-tool guy. Right. But I just don't think that if you eliminated shifts tomorrow, that all of a sudden all these big lefty power hitters would start swinging for singles. I just don't think it would happen. No. Do you? Mm. I mean, it just doesn't seem realistic to me. Maybe, sure, there would be a couple of guys who would, but most players would keep doing what what has gotten them to this point, which is uppercutting the ball. Um, That's what is rewarded now. And I don't mean... Financially necessarily, but that's what's rewarded on the scoreboard. Yes, certainly. Um, uppercut, change your launch angle, hit fly. Look at Joey Votto, for gosh sake. Is Joey Votto going to start hitting ground balls to beat the shift? Of course not. No. It's preposterous. Um, so if that isn't the case, if you're not going to get a more interesting game because you're going to have more base hits or singles or grounders or whatever, then what are you doing? All you're doing is taking something out of the manager's toolbox, which I think is pretty interesting. I like seeing guys run around on the field doing all these weird things, four-man outfields and and the, the the shortstop playing over the other side of second base. I think it's interesting. The goal should should be to bring interesting things back into baseball, not take them away. Yes. Well, and I mean, we're more or less contemporaries, and we remember baseball in the 80s so well. And I don't know. This is the same argument as, as music. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Wow, the music that I grew up with is the best. 
But baseball in the 80s was pretty good. I mean, it was really diversified in a way that's not always easy to find in baseball history. You know, the 60s just had, it was almost like a second dead ball era, and then you have just absolute power in the steroids era, then it goes away, then it comes back. Now it's power and strikeouts. Only stolen bases wouldn't really work. Like, I didn't love that. You know, that I wasn't really alive for that kind of baseball. But it, it feels like having balance has virtue, but there ha- it has to be rewarded. As you said, on the scoreboard, there has to be a reason to send guys. And moreover, there has to be training methods that do such. So if you think this bunting against the shift is a good idea, super duper. That means that kids should start bunting when they're eight years old, the same way that they should start learning how to, you know, rotate their hips and hit for power when they're eight years old. And it feels like whatever we think should happen is going to take a generation to catch on. Unless it's velocity, because velocity is one of those things, okay, everybody always wanted it. Now we've cracked the code and guys can throw 100. But otherwise, right. if it's a stylistic or a strategic thing, like I think guys come up, have come up in the last few years and said, I need to control the strike zone. Whether that's directly because of the Oakland A's of 2002 or not, the bottom line is that everybody does it. But I think that took a little bit of time, and I think if it's something even more counterintuitive like bunting or base stealing or whatever, it might take time. We might be saying, this is what the game needs, and then it'll be 67-year-old Rob Nyer saying, wow, everybody's like Terrence Gore now. How did that happen? I don't think anything happens without structural changes in the game, Okay. in the rules, um, in, 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 in the playing rules. Um, I don't – I just – and I, I will admit to a lack of imagination – but I don't see the stolen base coming back or or more bunts um, without some external uh, reason for those things to happen. Um, I don't see them happening naturally, um, which is what everybody wants. But good luck. And in fact, and, and, and you know this, but people in baseball seem to forget it or ignore it. Um, baseball for many decades made external changes all the time mm-hmm. to the playing rules. They said, you know what, we want the game to look like this, so we're going to do A and B and C. Um, and now A and B and C, for the most part, just aren't even considered options. Um, no, raising and, the mound, they used to raise and lower it, and Koufax yep. was throwing they, from they Mount Everest. The baseballs. Yeah, they changed the baseballs. Well, they did juice the baseballs, but we weren't supposed to know about it. We weren't supposed to know. They it's changed so the strike zone down. multiple times over the years. Yeah. Um, uh, but now, and if you listen to the players, it's almost as if we've reached some magical balance point where nothing needs to be changed anymore. But what's really happened is uh, the power structure doesn't allow for significant change. How so? Because of the state of the union or because of the nature of the CBA or what? The state of the vote. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, you, It's almost impossible to create any real change in the structure of the playing rules because the players are are – uh, reflexively, I don't know if the word is conservative or, or what, but, um, they, players hate change. Yeah. Like the rest of us hate change. Um, players don't like, you know, they're, if this is your livelihood, let's imagine, for example, that you're a, a relief pitcher in 2017 or 2018 and Rob Nyer comes along, Commissioner Rob Nyer, Comes along and Which says, is actually true. You were a commissioner recently. I still we're am. We're going to talk about. Oh yeah, that's right. We're going to talk about that too. But go ahead. So Rob, Commissioner Rob Nyer comes along and says, "You know what? We don't need these twelve-man pitching staffs anymore. I think ten or eleven will do just fine." Well, as a relief pitcher in the union, what's your reaction going to be? It's pretty Screw obvious, you. right? <laughs> um, so uh, 
and and that dynamic exists for almost anything that you want to do. Remember how hard it was to change the? It took I think three years to change the home plate collision rules. Yes, it's preposterous. In the old days, it would have taken a month. Now it takes years. Hmm. Well, and I think it's the bigger fish to fry doctrine, and this is the frustrating thing for me. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be changed or whatever, but sometimes you know you could get together with a few buddies and you say, "Why isn't this happening?" And the answer is because. You know, it could be something like the revenue split in baseball used to be 58-42 players, and now it's 58-42 owners, and the hell is that? And yeah, I'm making $5 million a year, but I probably should be making $5.9 million a year, and this is bogus. And that's completely legitimate. Marvin Miller would say the same thing. He'd say, you bet you should fight for your $900,000 or $90,000, and who gives a crap about stolen bases or whatever, yeah. and you just get stuck. You run out of time. You know, you start negotiating the CBA, and, you know... They, they decided on stuff like PEDs because it just became, oh, my God, it was such a an obvious thing. But there are other systemic problems in baseball that there's no way they're going to get addressed in the next CBA because they're just they're going to run out of time. They have to settle salaries and injuries and livelihood and billion-dollar businesses, and nobody's going to care about the things that – forget about maniacs like you and I who micromanage everything. Even just regular fans say, hey, buddy, why aren't we doing this thing? And that's enormously frustrating. I feel like – I wish there was a way to have like a CBA junior opened every six months and just say, <laughs> okay, we're going to discuss the big things, but let's get to, no, I'm, I'm like half serious here. My dog and right. cat are attacking each other, which is amazing. And my cat's <laughs> name, as I tell people is Pedro Martinez, by the way. Um, so I, I just wish there was a way to have a mechanism to discuss everyday things in baseball, to have a council of elders, put Bill and Bob Costas and, and, I don't know whoever else you want on it. Maybe you and, and, and let's talk about these things because we're just, they're not going to get done unless there's such major fish to fry. And it's frustrating to me as a fan. Right. I, I think that's a, it's a great idea. There should be a council of elders. There should be someone from ownership and someone from, yeah. from the union or, or few people from the, and, 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 and Bob Costas in the middle of things or, or Vince Scully or whomever. Not Jerry um, Reinsdorf. Not Jerry Reinsdorf. <laughs> Anybody but Jerry Reinsdorf. Go ahead. How about Jeffrey Loria? Maybe we could bring him. I'd on. much rather have Jeffrey Loria than Jerry Reinsdorf. I kid you not. Kid you not. <laughs> Jerry Reinsdorf has skated by for years. I have opinions about Jerry Reinsdorf. Anyway. Uh, no, I think it's a good idea. And you know what? I think those conversations do happen, but they don't happen in a, in a, probably the way that would lead to any real, yeah. real movement. Um, uh, and, you really do have a a sort of this conflict between the players who their union is exists for one reason and that's to um to Im- improve the conditions the living conditions and the playing conditions of players today uh and the owners theoretically anyway are trying to make money not only today but the ones who are in it for the long haul yes. 20 years from now um, and in the old days, of course, all those issues were decided in, in, in the, the owner's favor because the players had no power. And now it's such a balance that it's hard to get things done. And I, as I write in the book, I don't think anything significant is going to happen in terms of the structure of the rules until both sides feel that their, their livelihoods or at least their earnings are threatened in some way. But as long as the, the, the revenue graph is going up, there's just no impetus for change. How did you become a commissioner? Is this like you're Gary Oldman and you just get cast in a Batman movie and that's the end? Of, like, does it just does it come down from the heavens? Nobody's ever asked me to be a commissioner of any. I don't. Oh, you know what? That's not true. I'm the commissioner of my three sport fantasy league, and I do enjoy that. But that's it. 
the commissioner of a real professional baseball league is a really cool thing. And, and it feels like on the one hand, it's like Rob, the commissioner. And then it's like, yeah, Rob, the commissioner. Like once, once I heard about this, I was like, Oh, that actually makes sense. How are you liking this gig? How did it come to you? And, and what change, if any, have you affected in this league? Well, first of all, I don't know that I've affected any change because I'm not sure exactly what was happening before I got there. Fair. They ran pretty smoothly. There were – one of the things you You should describe in detail which league and how you the basics too, by the way, for people who don't know. Sure. It's it's called the West Coast League. And yeah. we, we, we bill ourselves, and I think, I think correctly, as the premier summer collegiate league west of the Mississippi. Uh, so, so it's like for the everybody's heard, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Well, ex- we're, we are the equivalent. Yeah. One difference is they get better prospects than we do. They yeah. are the they are the premier league, collegiate summer league, um, and geographically they're just on Cape Cod, right? So mm-hmm. they're all right there. Yeah. Whereas we range from Victoria and Kelowna up in British Columbia, yeah, all the way down to Corvallis and Bend in Oregon, which is if you there. people think. People think BC and and Bend are probably are, they're not close. No, no. It's a, it's a Especially not Kelowna because you got to go east. That's that's not easy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's 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 way up there. Uh, so our our geographic f- footprint is the largest in all of collegiate summer baseball. Mm. Um, but um, um, but we are the 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 highest quality league west of the Mississippi, um, I believe, um, and. Um, uh, we have 12 teams starting next season. We play from uh, early June until mid-August, and um, it's first of all, it's it's it's. I've gotten to do Jonah so many things that I never thought I would get to do. Like what? I got to hand out the championship trophy. Ooh! I got to wear a mascot's costume for an inning. Wow! And, and get drenched in sweat. It was a, a mar- <laughs> I was a marmot for an inning. Amazing. Um, I got to literally put together the all-star teams for both divisions. Um, I, I got to make the schedule or at least the draft schedule for next season. I got Ooh, to, uh, I love that. The math something. nerd in me loves that. I got, yeah, exactly. If you're, all these things are totally nerd. Like as a nerd, you think that wouldn't that be interesting? I got to throw out two first pitches, which I'm sure you've done. I did it only at a Staten Island Yankees game. It was a fan graphs meetup. And by the way, it was a strike. By the way, what? It was a strike. Low and outside oh. corner. Perfect pitch. I think mine was, not the same. I wonder if low and outside is typical. Um, well, I just but, feel like uh, because you don't realize how – because you're on the mountain, you don't realize – it's just – the plane is weird. Like I, I could, right. I'm used to throwing 60 feet to a friend. I'm not used to throwing from a mound. So maybe there's just right. a sink involved, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I got to visit all 12 – all 11 ballparks last season, which was a, a, a real kick. Cologne so, is cool, right? I love that town. I spent time in the Okanagan. I like it there. You had, really? Wow. Yeah, I spent. I, I was a summer camp counselor when I was a teenager. Very nice. Oh there. wow! Yeah. Well, Kelowna is sort of the bend of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. It's on the dry mm-hmm. side of the mm-hmm. mountains. Uh, it's next to water. Um, the, the 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 one. Uh, unfortunately, when I was there, it was shrouded in fire uh, forest fire smoke, oh, and it was ninety five degrees, so it wasn't the most pleasant time yeah. to be in Kelowna. But I do want to go back next June and experience it at its best. Um, so it, so it was a lot of. It was also tough. I mean, you have to play God. As commissioner, you have to levy suspensions and say, you know what? My decision is the decision. Yeah. I, I don't. And these are kids. These are kids. Unfair. Well, the, you know what? The kid stuff was actually pretty easy. Okay. Uh, it, it was the head coaches oh. and the coaches and the occasionally owners who gave me uh, more headaches than the players did. Mm. For the players, it's mostly cut and dried. Yeah. 
it's it's the it's the um the quote adults unquote who occasionally <laughs> were were um a bit vexing um but just to have that experience yeah to do all those things you'd never thought you'd get to do it was like going to mars for me it was Amazing. great what was the toughest decision you had to make what was the toughest uh, the thing that kept you up at night um well I, I i'm not sure how much liberty i have but there was a situation where um an owner essentially disregarded one of my decisions regarding his coaching staff oh um, and that's just not supposed to happen in any league anywhere no. so um that whole process um you know it's interesting nothing ever kept me up at night um but I'm just not used to dealing with conflict. It's not never really been a part of my life. Well, you have a child. <laughs> I do. She's pretty easy going. She is. Uh, and very cute. Yeah. So, you know, now look, when, I'm sure maybe this is just, just great preparation for when she's a teenager. <laughs> but I haven't even gone there yet. I mean, that's still 10, 11 years away. So um, I've had it pretty easy so far. Uh, and how did you come to the gig, by the way? Just because it sounds so cool and all this stuff, but how did it come to be? <clears throat> As best I know, I happened to be giving a a talk of a historical nature mm-hmm. um, about America's or about baseball status as our national pastime, historically and currently. And I was giving a talk at a at a a, a, a large baseball banquet here in Portland, and the the man who basically runs the Corvallis Knights, uh, sort of the New York Yankees of our league, huh. happened to be in the, in the in the audience. And at the very same moment, the league happened to be casting about for huh. for a new commissioner. And for whatever reason, Dan, Dan Siegel is his name, he, he thought I'd be a good fit. And uh, we went out for breakfast, and um, uh, within a few weeks, um, I had an offer uh, to be commissioner. So it was just a convergence of, of, of events and um, here, here we are. So it's launch day. I know you, you, you got to go pretty soon, but I want to ask you what launch day feels like. It's been a while. You've done it before. Uh, but I feel like it's different than it was years ago. Heck, I mean, the last time I did it was 2014. And even that feels different, even though that was also in the social media era, you know, that you have to be out there, not only doing radio and TV and newspaper interviews, but you got to tweet, you got to get your friends to tweet. You got to go on Instagram, you got to go on Snapchat, you got to go on whatever the heck, LinkedIn, I don't know, and and do all these things that generate enthusiasm. And by the way, the trick to selling a book or to trying to get a bestseller or whatever is you actually have to get people, I'll let you people in on a little secret, you get people to pre-order the book. That's how you make a bestseller list. It really, it's the first week of sales and everything before the first week of sales, if you put it on sale a year before, that counts too. So you are haranguing people, tell a friend, tell a friend, do this, do that, do that. You are not the self-promoting maniac, nay, whore that I am. Uh, <laughs> so how do you go about doing it in a way that is kinder and gentler but gets the message across? And are you, like, jazzed about today? Are you nervous? Are you anxious? How are you feeling right now? It's such a, a, a fun and rare occasion in a writer's life to have launch day that I want to know how you're feeling. Well, I – and this is pretty typical of me I, – I, I wasn't – consciously nervous at all um but i haven't been sleeping very well okay uh so i think subconsciously yes it's been weighing on me because you know obviously you work on a book like this for a long time and and you want people to enjoy it and and frankly you want it to sell so you can do another one yes um this might be my last book who knows 
Um, it, this is my first book since 2008, I think. Wow. So uh, this is my first book in the social media, media era. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 when the last book I did, the, the goal was to, uh, basically to get an excerpt somewhere that people would see it yeah. and then order it yeah. and then watch Amazon obsessively to see if it helps sales. <laughs> I'm purposely not doing that this time. I'm not looking at Amazon. I don't really want to know. Yeah. Uh, it won't help me. Um, you know, Goodreads didn't exist then. Twitter didn't exist. Um, Facebook barely existed. So I'm doing all those things now. Um, but it's still to some degree, to a large degree, is a black box. I mean, we know that if you are on the Daily Show, you're going to sell a lot of books, right? Uh, or if, um, a few people who have a gazillion followers on Twitter Say you're, they love your book, you're going to sell books. But otherwise, I don't know that there's any secret. You just do what you can. Last time I did this, I, I did what they call, and you've done these, a satellite radio to a yep. radio tour, yep. where you go on uh, a dozen uh, radio stations around the country in a row um, and talk about the book. And I'm doing that. I did that today. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it Thursday. Um, and um, and then you know you do what you can after that. But you want to. Do as much as you can the week of the book comes out. Um, some people, a lot of people have been very gracious about, um, about the book on, on Twitter, which, which I appreciate. But yep. does Twitter move books? I don't know. I have no idea. I've never done this before. I hope that tomorrow, um, a, a few hundred people or a few thousand people will, will have, have ordered the book in one of its many, many, uh, manifestations, but I have no idea. So speaking of the book, uh, and I'm going to do this in the intro too, but I really want to make this clear to people. So um, I've known you're writing for a long time. You're one of the biggest reasons that I decided to pursue this career path in the first place. I knew I wanted to be a sports writer, but the idea of writing about baseball on the internet, that is straight off of you. I ripped it right out of the Rob Nyer playbook. Um, so obviously I knew something coming in. I knew about your body of work and all that. It's difficult to create hypotheticals, but I can say with pretty good confidence that if I read this book and I knew nothing about you, I'd want to read more of your stuff. It's it's difficult to write about things in a in an intellectual way, in a historical way, in a way that teaches people uh, lessons and, and gives them new thoughts and do so in an entertaining way. This one really, really does so. Now I want to know if I'm some hypothetical guy or gal about, oh, the last book you wrote was in 2008? Cool. You wrote this thing on the internet? Cool. It really, really manifests itself that way, and uh, I really loved it. And uh, you alluded to it briefly before. We don't know. We can go into it, not go into it. It doesn't matter. But when I found out that you were going to, that it was confirmed that you were going to write this book, I had really high expectations. I said, oh, it's going to be something like what Dan O'Krim did in the 80s, uh, except that Rob's writing it. I bet it's going to be really good. It crushed the expectations of what I thought it was going to be. So I really, really like this. And you could sell one copy or you could sell 10 trillion copies. It's a really damn good book and people should pick it up. Oh, well, that's really kind of you to say. I think um, I haven't said this publicly yet, but I, I'll say it now. Um, uh, the only reason uh, that, that I got the chance to do this book was because as near as I can tell, you didn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, the story that I was 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 essentially told was that my editor came to you because you had a relationship and said, Jonah, what do you think about this idea and you said well i don't think that's for me at least not right now but you should talk to rob nyer so 
if you're right and the book works, and I'm glad it works for you, and I hope it works for other people, if it works, it only happened because you thought it would work. So um, as as you know, because I, I, I told you this, I, I'm incredibly grateful for your for your confidence in me. So 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 thank you. Well, right back at you. And like I said, I literally would be, I don't know, shoveling snow or whatever for a living, if not for me reading your stuff in, back in the mid-90s. So it's a love fest all around. The book's really great. Uh, Rob Nyer will follow you on Twitter at Rob Nyer. Pick up Powerball. And if you can, if it's possible, because it'll be widely distributed. Amazon is lovely, and I got no problem with Amazon. But certainly if you live in Rob's neck of the woods, go to Powell's and get it. If you live in Seattle or Phoenix <clears throat> or Toronto or whatever, I guarantee you there is an indie bookstore or some way of buying it in that way. I would highly encourage you to support your local independent bookstore and pick it up that way. Uh, it's you could Now, if you have a Kindle, fine, that's fine. But if you want a hard copy of it, uh, try to do it that way because that's a cool way to support the book industry. And uh, Or, yes, please. I may add. Yes. Or you can go to Amazon or Audible.com and you can listen to me reading the book. For nine hours and 51 minutes. Amazing. That's so amazing. I actually had a conversation with somebody at Random House, and it's several years after the uh, Up, Up, and Away, my Expos book came up. But there was some talk about, would you want to do an audio book afterwards? I told them, I don't really have an expressive enough voice, and I don't like hearing myself talk, so I'm going to have to say no. No, that's not what I said. I said, of course I want to do it. So we'll see if that comes to fruition. (laughs) Was that super fun for you? Uh, Jonah, it literally... Physically is the hardest thing that I have ever done that didn't include climbing a mountain. Wow, because it's exhausting. It, it is. And I was only recording for – I'd be at the studio for roughly six hours a day. Yeah. But I was only actually recording for about four of that between lunch and breaks. Yeah. But it it is physically exhausting because your your brain has to work so hard to to say those words – without fumbling every two seconds. I feel like I'd lean into the fumbles. I'd be like, I don't know. Robin Yount. Yount. You, you know what? It doesn't matter what his name is. And and that would just be in the thing, that you could just have fun. Well, with. your producer would probably not uh, tolerate that for too My long. My producer would be fired. That's what I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Rob, this has been great. Thank you so much. Best of luck in all your endeavors. Let's talk more in uh, non-podcast form, too. And uh, for everybody listening, pick up Powerball. It's a hell of a book. Thank you so much, Jonah. This has been fun.